greet you once again this snowy morning. Thank you for coming. And uh, now I've been introduced to Wyoming snow. It's the same kind of snow as, um, as Colorado, but you get a little bit more of it, I think, up here. So thank you. What a beautiful, beautiful day outside. And uh, it's a beautiful season of the year, too. We call it Advent. Advent is a word that simply means coming. With uh, the Advent season, we celebrate, as Christian churches all over the world, the two comings of Jesus. The Bible says he came the first time as a suffering servant. That's what we call the incarnation or Christmas. That's when he came the first time. He lived here for about 33 years, and uh, he ended up dying on a cross, being uh, crucified as a criminal. He rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven, and he's been gone now for roughly 2,000 years. He's coming again. That's called the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he won't be a suffering servant. He's not going to be riding on a donkey then. He's not going to be uh, of peasant background. He is going to be the king. The Bible teaches that he will then rule on earth for a thousand years, and things will return to the way they were in the Garden of Eden. Peace, justice, animals, uh, well, children will be playing in, in a cobra's nest. nest. Won't that be fun? Uh, laying down with lions and, and bears, and what a, what a world it will be. Like in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered this world, the Bible speaks of. So we celebrate at Christmas time, Advent, the two comings of Jesus. And of course, we're going to focus mainly on his coming. And today in particular, we're going to focus on the wise men. The wise men, of course, have, been, have received some pretty inaccurate press. We call them uh, the, the, the three wise men. We have no idea if there were three. We say they're three wise men because they um, uh, brought three gifts. And so we say, oh, there must be three. There's no indication that that's true at all. Probably they came with an enormously large entourage, probably hundreds. Maybe only three, quote unquote, wise men came. They, um, we three kings of Orient are, we sing. Well, they were not kings. There's no way they were kings, but they were someone probably greater than kings. There are a group of people from the 7th century BC onward in Persia, where they probably came from, who were king makers. These are the people who were responsible for selecting and uh, vetting future kings. So they're very, very powerful people. Not kings, but maybe king makers. Um, we don't know their names by, by any means at all, though we kind of, uh, tradition gives them names. And um, they were not from the Orient. When we think of Orient, we think of the Far East, maybe China or Japan. That's probably not at all the case. In all likelihood, they were from Persia, which is today Iran, or Saudi Arabia. They were Arabians, both of which are east of Israel. So they, they've received some inaccurate press, but they're very important to the Christmas story. And so today, we're going to look at the three wise men. Three, who knows? Um, the thing that they bring to our, our attention is they are people who were Gentiles. These are not Jewish people. These are likely Iranians, if you can imagine, who were, they viewed the stars and the heavens. They were scientists to some degree. They were very intelligent people, certainly. And they noticed something in the skies that caused them to, 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 to take a long trip. They took a very long trip all the way to Israel, and of course, they were rewarded. What they were looking for was a king. We have Roman, Roman historians of the first century, Suetonius and Tacitus. These are, of course, not Christian people. These are Roman historians 
both of whom write in their writings that around the time of Jesus Christ, remember these people are writing in the first century, there was a messianic fervor in the air. People who were living around the, the, what we now call the, the turn of the millennia, they expected that God, the gods, were up to something unusual and there would be the birth of some extraordinarily important person. That was, Roman historians are telling us about this. This is not in the Bible. It's Roman historians. And so these people, these wise men who were following the stars, listening to the scuttlebutt on the streets, who knew that people were expecting something to go, to, to, to take place, they saw the stars, they followed the stars, and eventually they led them to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, a lot of things happened. Now the question that we're going to raise today, which is the ultimate question that the story of the wise men asks us to ask ourselves, is who is Jesus? Who is this baby that they call Jesus? And what should we do with this baby? That's the question. Now we're going to have three main characters in the story. The first one will be King Herod. King Herod is going to receive news about the birth of this baby, and he's going to have a reaction. Not a very positive one. Very negative. But we'll learn today a little bit about King Herod. Secondly, it's the reaction of the religious leaders. These are the people who knew a lot about the birth of the Messiah. They had scores and scores of passages from the prophets in the Old Testament telling them that the, prophet, that the Messiah would be born. They knew a lot, and they had a reaction to the birth of Jesus. And thirdly, of course, the Magi, the wise men. They had a little bit of information, and they followed the information they had, and they had a reaction to the birth of Jesus as well. Three different reactions, and of course, we need to ask ourselves, which one is ours? So let's go through the story. As we talk about the visit of the Magi, this story is found for us in the Bible in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples. He was a tax collector, probably a pretty wealthy man, very well educated. But this story is going to show how God brings his light to Gentiles. And actually in the story, the ones who are most faithful to God are not the Jews, but the Gentiles. So here we go. Here's how the story goes. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, now, we know when this is. <clears throat> of course, those who dated the birth of Jesus Christ, you know, we date our calendars all over the world, B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We date our calendars by the birth of Christ, but they got the date wrong. We know it's wrong because we know when King Herod died. King Herod died by our calculations for B.C. We know that. And so... Jesus must have been born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. We don't know the date. And by, in all likelihood, it was not December 25th. They just made that one up. So um, he was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. while King Herod was the king of, of Israel under the Roman government. King Herod ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. under the Roman government, and he got his kingship buying it. He bought it from the Roman government. That's how he became king. He is not Jewish. He is related to the Jewish people. He's what's called an Idumean or an Edomite. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the three patriarchs? You have Jacob and Esau, the sons. 
Jacob is the, the father of the Jewish people. Esau is the father of the Edomites. So King Herod is a descendant of the Edomites. They are cousins of the Jews, but they're not closely related. So King Herod, the Magi from the East. Magi, um, these people were probably um, very important people, um, very wealthy people. They would never have traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles by themselves on three camels. That's just ridiculous. If there were three of them, and let's assume that there are three of these bigwigs, they would have had hundreds of people with them. And so they would have brought a huge entourage of servants and people to, to take care of all of their needs because this trip from Persia to Israel would have taken months for them to get there. So this is a large number of people. And so you had this large entourage of very important people show up in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a notable town, but it's not that big. When it was the city of David, when he made it his capital, it was about the size of this church property. That's how big the city was, the whole city. So it's not a big city. But uh, it's a very important city, and so these very important people from Iran made a long trek with a very large entourage of people. They showed up in Jerusalem, and everyone goes, Woo, who are they? They would have made a stir, a huge stir, because they're very wealthy, they're very important, and there are many of them, probably. And they come, and what do they ask? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That's a very important question. They had anticipated, the Jewish people had anticipated now for 2,000 years the birth of the Messiah King. And now this group, this large entourage, shows up from Iran and it says, where is he? We know he's been born. How do you know? We saw it in the heavens. We saw the star and we have come to worship him. Now, what are you going to do with that information? Well, um, Herod finds out about it, and he wants to know more because Herod has a vested interest in what they find because he's the king, and he wants to pass on the kingship through his children and their children and their children. And if there's another king born, that's a rival to the throne. So he now wants as much information as he can get. So what does he do? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Of course, this is a potentially dangerous person that's been born. And he's not the only one disturbed. All Jerusalem was disturbed with him. After all, this huge group of people come and says, your king's been born. And they didn't know he'd been born. So they're disturbed. And they knew what Herod would do if there was any rival to his, to his throne. They had seen it over and over again. He killed his wife. He killed all three of his sons. He killed his father-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed the high priest. He kills everybody. And they know that if there's some rival to Herod that's been born, they may lose their heads. You know what he did, by the way? Herod, just before he died, he had all of the, the, the most important people in Jerusalem put in prison with orders to his soldiers that they would all be executed on the moment of his death so somebody would cry when he died. That's what he did. That's how evil this man is. Can you imagine? 
there's a mayor of Sheridan. And the day, and he's a horribly evil man. And the day, in the weeks before he dies, and he's very sick, and on the, the doorstep of death, he puts all of the city council people, all of the bigwigs in all of Sheridan in jail with the orders that every one of them is to be executed on the moment of his death because Herod knew nobody gave a rip about him. They would all laugh when he died, but he wants people to cry. That's what he did. That's this man. And so he, everyone's disturbed, obviously, because there's a rival to Herod's throne that's been born. So what does Herod do? He calls together all the muckety-mucks, the religious people who know about this proposed birth of this Messiah, this child, this king. He calls them to Jerusalem and says, hey, where? Where's this Christ to be born? And of course, they all knew the answer. Well, it was explicit. The Bible told them exactly where he was to be born. The, the Messiah will be born in Bighorn. That's it. I mean, that's true. The distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is the distance between right here and Bighorn. That's how far away. You can walk there in an hour and a half. So yeah, he's, yeah we know he's going to be born in Bighorn. Well, how do they know? Well. Good old King Herod asked them, and here's what they said. In Bethlehem, five miles down the road, that's all. They replied, for this is what the prophet, that's the prophet Micah, has written. Here's the quote, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's what Micah wrote hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees said, well, we, we know where he's going to be born. He's going to be born just down the road. Now, what's Herod going to do? Herod's got the basic information he wanted. Now he wants some specific information. So he says, okay, you religious people, you can leave and go back to your work. You wise guys, you come in here. I need to get some information from you. So he, he called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He said, give me more information. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, now, can you, this is just dripping, dripping with lies. Can you imagine? Oh, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. Oh, yeah, what a lie. Herod had no desire whatsoever to worship this baby. He wants to kill the baby. But, of course, he's lying through his teeth to the Magi because he wants them to find this baby so that he can now kill him. That's his desire. Can you imagine? Oh, just go. And come back and report to me. So they went. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, what was the star? We don't know. There are astronomers throughout all of time that have tried to figure out what this star might have been. Apparently, at this time in history, there was a conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter that could have been given an appearance of a star. It might have been some supernatural star that God had created for this purpose. 
There are there's certain people that have, have studied astronomy and they've said, oh no, there, were, there, there, there was a real star at that time. I think it's, it's possibly the, the Shekinah glory of God. Because there was a time when God shone a huge great light every day for 40 years over the place where his glory resided. And he did so in the temple in Jerusalem, but also over the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe God did something like that. We don't know. But somehow now God, through this star, this incredibly bright light, shone it on this house. Now remember, Jesus is not a baby in, an in, in, a, in a manger anymore. He's living in a house. Here's what it says. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So there's the star and there's the house. On coming to the house, they saw the child. Now the word child, there, does, there's a different word in, in Greek between child and infant. This is the word child. So they say Jesus was between one and two years old. He's not a baby anymore. With his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And as Sam said before, those are very significant items. The gold is extremely expensive and was uh, something that kings, it, it, it figured that's what kings had. And probably that gold was the money that um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus used because this next couple of days, they're going to have to run for their lives. They're peasants. They have no money. They don't have a bank account. They don't have any credit cards. So now they've got this gold, which is extremely valuable, which probably was used by God to finance their trip and their stay in Egypt. So the gold was very practical. Incense. Incense is very important to the Jewish people in the worship of God. Because God designed the tabernacle and the temple that there was an altar of incense right in front of the Holy of Holies that was a, a symbol of the prayers of God's people. And in many churches today, particularly Greek Orthodox churches, you go into the church and immediately you will smell the incense. It's a very typically associated with the worship. And then myrrh. Myrrh was an extrude from a, from a tree, from a variety of trees that was then used for embalming people who were dead to um, change the smell from very bad to somewhat beautiful. So it was used in burial rites and very significant for Jesus because his death and burial as our Savior is extremely important to the message of Christianity. They gave their gifts to him and, and this picture I like because it rightly shows them Jesus is not a little infant, he is a child and they came and gave him the gifts. And then having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So now they go back home and what happened? We now introduce ourselves to the three people who are the main characters in the story. And this is where we'll focus as we conclude the service today. First of all, King Herod. King Herod, when he died, was 70 years old. Those are the dates in which he lived, 74 to 4 BC. He was a very powerful leader and very important in the Bible. He was, as I told you, a ruthless and cruel man, incredibly cruel. But, and, and of course, I didn't even mention he killed the babies in Bethlehem. Probably not a lot of babies, but those mothers would have been deeply, deeply sorrowful at what this crazy man did. He bought his position from the Roman government 
But he had a somewhat compassionate heart. In the year 25 BC, there was a great famine in the country of Israel, and um, Herod took some of his own personal money, gold, and he used it to help pay food for the people. So he was, had, a, had, a, had a compassionate streak. But what he really wanted for his people is that they would be faithful to him, pay their taxes, and he mesmerized them with bread and circuses. In every town in Israel that he put his touch to, he made sure they built theaters, hippodromes for chariot races, and places where the people could be entertained. And after all, it's the same today. Make sure they have enough food and entertainment, they'll be happy. That's what he did, and he was good at that. He is probably one of the greatest builders in human history. He has few rivals. Let me just tell you a few things. In the upper left there, that's, that's the Temple of Jerusalem that he built. It was one of the greatest structures in the world at the time, full of gold everywhere, an incredible building built under his administration. In the middle there, that's what you find today in the city today called Nablus. In Bible times, it was called Samaria or Shechem. Those are some of the pillars that are still there, and there are hundreds of those. There's a theater here. There are hippodromes. There are all these things are still there today, and you can see them. I've seen them. On the upper right there, that's a three-tiered palace that he built with hot baths, Olympic-sized swimming pool in the middle of a desert on top of a mountain. That's a fortress where he could run to. It's called Masada. And that's where in the great Jewish war, 1,000 Jewish people committed suicide rather than submit themselves to the Romans. That's Masada. On the bottom there, uh, <clears throat> on the left, that's the city of Caesarea that he built. You see the theater? It's in the bottom right in the middle there. That's the theater. It's still used today. They have plays and, 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 and concerts there today. The acoustics are perfect. They don't need these crazy speakers because they had it perfectly designed. He built a port in a place that they don't even know how he did it now. There are hippodromes there for chariot races. There are multiple theaters. That's where Paul was imprisoned for two years. He built that city. He built, this is the Herodium, and the Herodium is this building. It's still there today. He built an artificial um, um, volcano in the middle of which he put a fortress with walls all the way around it and just about... Um, about 10 years ago, they found his tomb. He built his tomb here. This is where he was buried. And this is a place just about eight miles from Jerusalem where he could run and, be, and hide because he was completely paranoid. He was an incredible builder, and the stuff is still there to this day, 2,000 years later. As I've said to you many times, Christianity is primarily history. And, this is the, and history is about dates and places and real stuff. Because these things really happened. And this is some of the places. Well, Herod hated Jesus for obvious reasons. He hated him because he saw Jesus as a rival. Now, what, was, what did Herod know? Herod knew a lot. He, we know from history, knew a lot about Jewish religion and customs. Herod, we know, had access to the, to the Jewish religious leaders, so he had a knowledge of the Holy Scriptures. Herod, we know because of his help to the poor in 25 BC, had a bit of a conscience to help the poor when they were starving to death, even though he was incredibly cruel with his family and any rivals to his throne. Here was a man who knew quite a bit about 
God, and yet when you mixed what he knew about God with an evil heart, a selfish heart, a self-seeking heart, a heart that was primarily concerned with his own, how his own ego would be, would be dealt with, he turned into a very evil and cruel man. A lot of knowledge with an evil heart and great, great danger. This week, I, I remember from, from my study of history in, in times past that there are many well-known religious leaders, or, or, or leaders, not religious, who, um, who had a sizable Christian background, but they did not believe in God and turned out to be very, very ne negative. Let me, um, if I can find in my notes here, I'm, I'm losing it here. Um, uh, let me give you some of them. One of them is uh, uh, Karl Marx. Why can't I find it? Oh, here it is. Karl Marx. Of course, he was, he was Jewish. And Karl Marx, of course, had, some, had a lot of knowledge of Judaism. But, of course, he became the, the father of communism. Charles Darwin, who all of us here have heard of, Charles Darwin, uh, he, was, he went to University of Edinburgh to become a medical doctor. But he transferred from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland to Cambridge University in England to study for the ministry. He was going to be a pastor. And ironically, the only degree that Darwin ever earned was not a degree in science, but in religion. How about Friedrich Nietzsche, probably the greatest of all the German philosophers? A man who came up with the line, God is dead. Well, Nietzsche, um, his father was a pastor. He studied theology, and Nietzsche at one time hoped to be a pastor himself. That's Nietzsche. What about Joseph Stalin, the great killer of over 20 million people? Joseph Stalin sang in a church choir, and he went to seminary to become a priest. What about Adolf Hitler, the great evil, evil man? Adolf Hitler sang in a church choir. And in fact, Adolf Hitler considered becoming a priest. These are people who had knowledge of God, but when mixed with an evil heart, turned into great catastrophe for the human race. But they knew a lot. Now, they, there's a flip side to this. There are other people who, there's a long list of these people who have nothing to do with God. They don't believe in God. But when they were introduced to the story of Jesus, their lives were transformed. Let me give you a few. Have some of you been involved in churches all over the world and taken the Alpha Course? Some of you have taken it, I'm sure. Well, the Alpha Course was started by a man by the name of Nicky Gumbel, who was an atheist who became an Anglican priest. Um, any of you heard of Chronicles of Narnia? Chronicles of Narnia, of course, are written by C.S. Lewis, who was an Oxford professor of literature, who was an atheist, who became a Christian and called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He didn't want to become a Christian, but his mind forced him to because it's true. What about, um, have any of you read, um, um, what's it called, uh, World Magazine? World Magazine's editor is a man by the name of Marvin Olansky. He was a Marxist who became an ardent Christian. Have any of you heard of um, um, Lee Strobel? 
Lee Strobel was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune, an avowed atheist who was trying to promote atheism until he was confronted by the reality of Jesus Christ and now has become one of the great apologists for Christianity. Have you heard of Frank Morrison? Frank Morrison, likewise, was a, a journalist early in the 1900s who set out to prove that the resurrection was false because he knew that Christianity is all built on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus. That's not true. All of Christianity falls apart. And he went to, to disprove that it was true, and he realized it was true and wrote one of the classic stories of all time about the resurrection of Jesus called Who Moved the Stone? Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, one of the greatest living apologists for Christianity today, he also was an agnostic. He believed that Christianity was absolutely worthless until he started to study it for himself and realized this is true. I just finished listening to a book. Oh, it's incredible. I would recommend it to any of you. It's um, by, written by a man named Nabil Qureshi. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He was a devout, a devout Muslim who deeply loved Islam and had very good loving parents. But as he started to investigate Christianity through a very godly friend, he realized this is where the truth resides and became a strong, powerful proponent of Christianity. You see, more knowledge is not the answer. The more knowledge you have with a heart that is not right could well lead you to great evil, like with these people I've mentioned. But knowledge with a godly heart, I would submit to you, lead you to Jesus. But the first person we have in this story is, is Herod. He knew a lot, but his heart was evil, and he became a hater of Jesus. But we also have the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders of the time of Jesus have two groups, Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were the keepers of the temple. The Pharisees were the keepers of the synagogues. They were very different. There's one temple, hundreds of synagogues. The Sadducees were extremely rich and powerful, but many of them didn't even believe in God. How can you be a leader of the temple and you don't even believe in God? Well, money. It was a very good business. They were filthy rich. They had massive amounts of power, and people don't care if they believe it or not. In fact, you've probably heard the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So that's why they were sad, you see. Um, they didn't even believe in God. But religion was a very lucrative business. So Herod calls in the Sadducees, but the Pharisees did believe in the Bible. They deeply believed in the Old Testament scriptures. They studied them thoroughly. So Herod calls these two groups in to his office or his palace or his throne room. And he asks them, okay, give me what the scriptures teach about the Messiah. And they say, well, we know. Here's what they say. Elie Wiesel is a, is a, is a Nobel Prize winning author, wrote the book Night, and he was a victim. Uh, he didn't die, but he was in Auschwitz as a child. He made this statement, and I think it's incredibly powerful. The opposite of love is not hate. Because if, if you hate someone or something, which I don't recommend, at least you acknowledge they're alive. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, 
that's indifference. It has been said by people who study our society that one of the greatest characteristics of America today is we're a very apathetic society. Maybe that's changing, but we just, nothing matters. We'd rather play our video games than do anything else. Now, let me create this scenario for you. Let's assume that at the school right across the river here, Sheridan College, they have the most eminent math program in the history of the whole world. They have the best mathematical professors, and this Sheridan College is known for its exquisite math department. At the same time as the accolades are being foisted on Sheridan College as the best mathematical school in the world, in Bighorn, Wyoming, a child in fourth grade taking an IQ test has just scored the highest score known in the history of humanity. And somebody who gave the test to the person in fourth grade in Bighorn Elementary School went over to Sheridan College and said, you can't believe it. There's a kid in Bighorn who has the highest IQ in the history of the world in math. And the professors at Sheridan College go, cool. That's it. Cool. Not a one of them ever gets in their car and goes to Bighorn to check it out. Would that strike you as odd? Yeah? I mean, would that strike you as really odd? Well, let's say it's the, the let's say there's a, the, the, the number one prospect for football in the whole country. The t number one student um, athlete in the Parade All American is a student here, is, is a student up at Bighorn High School, not Bighorn or um, at Sheridan. And no one, no college recruit, no college um, uh, scouts ever go to uh, the, the high school, ever. No, of course, that's ridiculous. You'd make a beeline to Bighorn. Remember, Jesus at 12 years old was bamboozling the PhDs of his day. Now, if, if I'd been one of those PhDs, I want to follow that kid. What happened to that 12-year-old? What happened when he was 13, 14, 15, 29, 30? What, what happened to him? Huh. They were so busy with religion, you know what they did? Nothing. That's what Jesus said. I know what you're like. You're neither hot nor cold for me. I like cold. I like people who are antagonistic to me. I like people who deeply love me. Jesus said this. I didn't write this. But the ones that drive me nuts are those that don't give a rip. I would submit to you the greatest danger that we face as religious people is indifference. We know the truth. These people knew the Bible. They knew everything about the Messiah. They know where the Messiah is to be born. This, this group of wise men came and said, we found him. We know where he is. He's down the road five miles. And what did they do? Nothing. Not a one of them, to our knowledge, ever checked him out. That's ridiculous. But you see, when you have knowledge of the truth and you mix it with an apathetic heart, it creates some pretty bad stuff. That's what it did in the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were just apathetic. Herod was 
angry. He hated. But the religious leaders didn't, weren't angry. They, weren't, they didn't hate. They just didn't do anything. They were apathetic. But the wise men, they were very different. Now, these are the least likely people. They knew the least. What they did know is they knew what they saw in the skies. They knew what they knew in their conscience. They knew what had, was being said by historians like Suetonius and, and Herodotus, though they, they came a little bit after their time, but they knew what the scuttlebutt on the street was. And they said, we're going to find out if there's truth to this. So they made an incredibly long voyage at great, great, great cost, and it was rewarded. They found the child. And what did they do? They worshipped him. And so for us, those are our three options. The question at the beginning was this, what will you do with Jesus? We're going to celebrate next week his birth. Now some of us, some people around the world are going to be so ticked off. If you say Merry Christmas to them, they're going to say something bad to you. I've been those places. I'm from Colorado. Um, they aren't going to like Merry Christmas. No, it's holidays. No Christmas. There will be people very antagonistic to Christmas, very antagonistic to the birth of Jesus. And I would submit to you that oftentimes there's something going on in their heart, which is okay, because at least they're alive. They're not dead inside. But there's the, the great danger that we're going to face as Christians is that we know the truth. We've got the Bible. We know what's been fulfilled. We know how the prophets prophesied. And then we take all this incredibly great information and... Nothing ever changes. It does some bad things to our hearts. But there's another option. Take what little we know, or how much we know, combine that with a good and godly heart, and you see Jesus. How Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. How Jesus is the one that makes all the math work. How Jesus is the one who is the promised Savior of the world, who deals with our sin problem, who was raised from the dead, who defeated death, who opened up heaven. And what does it produce? Fall on your knees. Adoration, just like the wise men. What will we be? This is what Luke wrote in the book of Acts. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. And to that statement, we have three responses. The first is the response of those who hate it and everything about Jesus. It's not the worst response, actually, because at least they're acknowledging his existence if you hate him. <laughs> it's not good to do. Indifference or apathy is a great problem. We just don't care. But what I would urge you to respond this week as we prepare our hearts for, for Christmas is worship. That's how we can join the wise men of our world. Let's give thanks. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for these incredible men of old who were wise. Wise enough to take what little they knew and follow it to Jesus. I pray that we be like them. pray that we, Heavenly Father, would take what little we know and follow it to Jesus too, resulting in worship. 
that would be a great privilege for us this Christmas season to see Jesus afresh, not simply as a marvelous baby or as a sinless example, but as the suffering servant, our Savior, the one who rose from the dead in our glorious coming King. To that end, we pray in his name, Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me. May you leave this place today and enjoy. Enjoy the privilege we have as Christians in this good land during this season. And may you be like the wise men who adore this baby, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go and worship him. God bless you.